This is Anne Fremantle bringing you another of the pen portraits on WNYC. What is pen, P-E-N? Pen is an a world association of writers, and the initials stand for poets, essayists, and novelists, and by implication of the initials, for all writers. They, it all, they, these initials also stand for publishers, uh, and, uh, novel, uh, publishers and newspeople um, and editors who are welcome to share in the work of Penn. Well, what is the work of Penn? What does Penn do and what does it stand for? Penn is an international association of writers and a mutual benefit society for writers. Uh, international Penn was founded in 1922 with John Galsworthy as its first president. American Penn was founded in 1921. The present international president of Penn is uh, V.S. Pritchett, the English novelist. The present president of American Penn is Jerzy Kosinski, the young novelist. Penn has 10,000 members all over the world in Asia, Africa, North and South America, Europe, and, and uh, all over the world. In Amer North America, Penn has 1,500 members. American Penn has its headquarters in New York City, but the writers come from all over the United States. One becomes a member of Penn by invitation of the executive. All writers of uh, known value are welcome and very welcome to Penn. Penn, what does it do for writers? Penn helps with copyright. Penn helps with translation. It tries to get better terms for writers, whatever they are doing. It, has, it invites foreign members and foreign writers and entertains them in America, in New York, and, and um, wherever they go. And Penn is, by implication, a society which benefits all writers everywhere. Penn is completely non-political, but it is very much against any form of censorship. And the members of Penn, when joining, promise in their, in, by, by joining Penn, they promise to go against any kind of censorship in the community where they belong. So Penn is for the freedom of all writing everywhere. I now have the great privilege of introducing two great writers who have just recently published books on PEN, Penn, on Penn Portraits for WNYC. The first writer, I shall mention him first because he is a foreigner, is Mr. Yui Johnson, who is a member of the West German Pen. He was born in Pomerania, studied German language and literature at the universities of Rostock and Leipzig. After 1959, he lived in West Berlin. He has been awarded the Fontane Prize of West Berlin for his first novel, Speculations About Jacob, which was published in 1959. And he had the International Publishers Prize for the third book about Achim. In 1971, he was awarded the highest German literary distinction, the Georg Büchner Prize. Mr. Johnson spent two and a half years in the United States, 1966 to 1968, working as an editor in the school department of Harkert Brace Jovanovich. It has long been his wish to live in the United States, not as a visiting writer, but as an average job holder. Out of this experience of a job holder in New York grew his latest book, Anniversaries, which is a Helen and Court Wolf book published by Harkett Brace Jovanovich. It is just out and has just been reviewed, and Mr. Johnson will be talking about the New York he loves or found, uh, whether he found it as, as agreeable as he thought. We shall learn by listening to him. 
Our other writer is Brendan Gill. Brendan Gill has been for almost 40 years on The New Yorker. The New Yorker is 50 years old this year, and for almost 40 years, Brendan Gill, quote, has been a contented inmate of that singular institution, as he calls it. And his affectionate account of the magazine, here at The New Yorker, by Brendan Gill, was published by Random House recently to great acclamation. It is the most lovely 50th anniversary present that The New Yorker could possibly have. Uh, my own favorite among Brendan Gill's many books um, is The Trouble of One House, but he has written many books, all of which are admirable. Now I give you these two writers, and they're going to talk about New York, New York. Uh, will you begin, Mr. Johnson? Will you tell us whether you found New York what you expected or worse? When I go, when I go back to my old neighborhood, uh, that's 96th Street around Broadway, <coughs> I feel in no more danger than I felt in the years I lived there. But it's uh, rather hard to recognize it because they, they are destroying it. There's half a block that is condemned. It held three, three small shops, a very good eating uh, shop and two cinemas. And I've, I've used this block and I've lived with it and now they are going to tear it down. And of course, I don't, do not like it. But it's uh, still my neighborhood and uh, I feel at home there. I feel very strongly like that. I've lived for 30 years in the same apartment, which is something for a New Yorker to say. Mr. Gill. Well, I think one of the things that Mr. Johnson has just mentioned is, is uh, of critical importance uh, to all New Yorkers, and especially to all of us who love New York, and that is the attempt to, pres to preserve the neighborhoods. Contrary to what everybody used to think, uh, New York consists entirely of neighborhoods, and people feel passionately about their neighborhoods. And when, as a political gesture, something called community boards were established in New York a few years ago, People thought that it was only a political gesture, but it turned out that the people didn't think it was a political gesture, and they care about their boards, and those boards have immense influence now. And when they want something, or when they want something not to happen, which is more important often than having something happen, uh, they fight for it, and they win. And uh, Mr. Johnson's neighborhood up there is one of the best neighborhoods in New York, one of the most interesting, most colorful neighborhoods. and. The only thing that's going to preserve that is an effort on the part of the citizens there to fight now before a new building boom begins. At the moment, in spite of what you say, there's, you know, that knockdown uh, area, it is true there. But all throughout the city, great neighborhoods are in jeopardy. But we have about five years before the building boom starts up again to try to change the law. And this is, I'm making a pitch now for, for the Landmarks Preservation Commission law. Um, and see that we can outwit the, the speculators who otherwise simply want to uh, destroy the city in the name of profit. But I'm delighted to have somebody like Mr. Johnson come from abroad and feel a sense of love for New York. It's much more common, I'm afraid, that people come and are miserable here, as Anthony Burgess uh, has been, so that he has written a book, uh, really, in effect, uh, the, uh, writing a poison pen letter to New York instead of a love letter. On the other hand, the late Winston Orton wrote the most charming love letter before he left, and he was miserable. He went back to England, didn't like it a bit. Yes. The, uh, <laughs> Died very sad. Well, it's a city, it's, it's a very difficult city to live in, as Rome must have been in, uh, under the Caesars. You know, if you're the greatest city on earth, as I think we are, then it's going to be the most difficult city on earth, it goes without saying. So it's hard to love, but once you get the knack of loving it, you're never not going to love it. Well, we have a house in Mexico, and every time I leave, my friends say, I can hear the nostalgia from New York and their voice on the telephone. 
<laughs> Are you going to live here a while this time, or is this just a short visit, Mr. Johnson? I'm sorry, I won't ever be living here again. Oh. <coughs> How do you know that? Well, uh, well, I, I don't expect to be rich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, and I can't pay uh, living in New York uh, with a European royalty. That uh, That is simply not enough. Mm-hmm. And you're, where, where do you live now? You live in England? I live in England now. And you live in the country? I live on an island in the Thames estuary. Oh, well, that sounds very nice indeed. Yes, it's it's rather quiet. But it's also less expensive than living in London, or just about oh, the quite, same as living oh, in London? Yeah. You know, uh, after these years in New York, I returned to the apartment I had in West Berlin. And it, uh, West Berlin is, is a great city, and I'll praise it, but it is rather quiet after you've lived in, in New York. And, uh, uh, to make this quietness complete, I went to England. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, Jonas Mikas, who's one of our movie makers and, and writers about movies here in New York, a few years ago, uh, I was going to do a story about, simply because he was able to live here in New York uh, in the late 60s on just over $1,000 a year. Imagine it. But of course, you had to be Jonas Mikas. You had to buy your clothing at the, at the, the Salvation Army. Thrift clubs are wonderful. And you were in a cold water flat. And uh, you ate some kind of ghastly macrobiotic diet of you know of beans, but and uh, and and you didn't uh, ever go to the theater, and you only borrowed books out of libraries. But at a sacrifice, it's amazing to me that young people, young artists and writers, yep. are still able to to get along somehow here. And they keep coming. I've had recently about uh, one great niece and her husband and a cousin and uh, her husband, and they've arrived in New York to live forever. Young people from from England. But if you have a family and you have uh, and you're a little bit older than the first flush of excitement of youth then it is a very difficult city, except for the rich, uh, and, and you have to put up a fight. Oh, well, uh, if I had a job, mm. you see, I would have stayed on. Mm. But jobs became very scarce then. The and I'm a foreigner, and I would have had the feeling of uh, robbing somebody of, of a job, and so... Mr. Keeler, what about children? I know you have children. Do you find it, did you find it possible to raise children in your No, well, we did. Uh, we had a house in the very same street that you've been living on all these years, in 78th Street, but it was a comparatively tiny house. Now I'm glad to say it's a historic monument. It's one of the ones that's a landmark. They are beautiful. And uh, but we once we had uh, too many children, which is too many children for a house with only six bedrooms. We had to move to Westchester, where we have a house with ten bedrooms. Uh, but now our children are all grown up, and we're going to go down back to about five bedrooms again. We keep changing uh, according to the needs. But one one doesn't need, as we have had for all these years, a 27-room house. But I've always regretted not being right in the heart of New York, and uh, it's been it's been sort of touching for me that from our rooftop in Bronxville I can see the Empire State Building and I can see the lights of the city at night, and I try to pretend that uh, that I am in a relationship with it because of that. You say it's such a, a noisy city, uh, Mr. Johnson. Do you know? No, where no, we- I, I didn't mean noisy. Ah. I mean alive. Ah, no, I was thinking because uh, where where I in the blocks that. Um, uh, Mr. Geller lived in and we live in, it's so quiet that when we go to the seaside, we are worried by the noise of the waves. <laughs> you know a great section of New York that I was in the other day uh, is Little Italy. Have, do you ever walk around in Little Italy? Oh, yes, I, I've lived there too, in a sense, just by walking in the streets and eating in the restaurants. And great restaurants. And much sky. You see, it has a very low... It's a, the, the buildings are all uh, two and three stories high. And uh, you have an immense amount of sky overhead, and then the streets are pleasantly open, filled with life, 
wonderful restaurants, and that whole area is now going to be saved. Oh, and there is I'm a little glad. Italy restoration that isn't going to let anybody come in and, uh, and uh, build uh, big buildings. Uh, their, their, their architectural plans are all made up. They're going to get federal funding to help preserve it. They're going to close off some of the streets and make a mall there and have a piazza like the Piazza Navona right mm -hmm. there by the police headquarters building, which is a wonderful Renaissance building. Which, in which all kinds of activities can be carried on now because the city is giving it to the Little Italy restoration. So there are, there are tremendous things happening in New York that never would have happened even a few years ago because people weren't yeah. conscious of, of what their uh, architectural heritage was. It is, things, it is one of the most amazing cities architecturally, the variety. Oh, every kind of thing. And of course, we've, we've been building ourselves up and knocking ourselves down continuously for 300 years. But by an irony, we still have a lot of old uh, building. And I always tease European friends by saying to their astonishment that both London and Paris are cities higher than New York City. The average height of buildings in London and Paris is much greater than it is here. That's because we have skyscrapers, but then we have acres and hundreds of acres of uh, two and three story buildings uh, in all the boroughs. So we're a very, very low city by comparison with European uh, great cities. And of course the use of water here is so marvellous. I mean it's the only city in the world which has the sky and the sea at the end of every uh, numbered block. We're very like Venice avenues. but nobody thinks of it that way. Yeah. But we, we were built like Venice because it was a protected place. It was a fort first, a fortified area. Then it was the great port, uh, one of the great ports of the world. Then the great rich Merchants, uh, princes built their big houses for show here, and we still have some of those palazzi, and they are palazzi, and some of them are even copied from the Venetian palazzi. So we are and ought to be a Venetian city, and we ought to be Mediterranean. And I think, Mr. Johnson, you must have noticed on this visit, even, that we are more Mediterranean now than we were 10 years ago. More people selling things on the street, more young people lying around on the steps, more openness. I saw this already in 67, 68. Uh, but it's increasing. Every <coughs> year we have, we're have we more Mediterranean. Yeah, the Upper West Side is a very European place, yeah. too. But what is making the Mediterranean thing is the islanders. You see, we have not only the Puerto Ricans who are giving us their wonderful Mediterranean at one removed way of life, but all the other islanders. There are 800,000 people from the, from the Caribbean uh, living in the New York area, the greater New York area now. 800,000, they're Trinidadians. Tens of thousands of Trinidadians living here. Well, they're transforming us from the old, nasty, uptight, puritanical, Protestant culture, which was afraid of itself, afraid to express anything, into a city where everybody is on the streets making love or dabbling and uh, splashing in the fountains and, and selling their trinkets on the steps of, of, of the Metropolitan Museum. You know, you go up to the Metropolitan to look at a Raphael or a Rembrandt, and somebody is selling you a rotten drawing of their own right on the steps outside. That's the way to do it. <laughs> it absolutely is. I remember when I took my youngest son, who was six, to London, and when I came back, I said, which do you like best, London or New York? And he said, oh, mummy, in the English underground, people all have the same face, and it's so dull. In New York, everyone has a different face. And I thought, that's my child. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be, by uh, the demographers say, just after the year 2000, uh, a non-white city, which is also a tremendous step forward. We'll be just the greatest city on earth, but it'll be happened that the greatest city on earth is non-white. It'll be every color, because the largest growing single ethnic group in New York are the Chinese. And they're spreading all over the place and uh, coming in by the thousands. 
and where I live, when I go home at night now on the train, very late at night, the only language I can hear on the, tra on the train is Japanese. So Japanese business executives uh, all up through Westchester, and they all buy their suits in the boys' department at Brooks Brothers. They're very natty, and they're all talking away and having such a good time with the train, much better time than any of the Americans have, I see. Doesn't this make you homesick for New York, Mr. Johnson? Oh, I felt homesick when I was here, <laughs> just by knowing that I would have to leave. <laughs> but yes, the, but it is at least possible to visit us whenever you want, presumably, or do you always use the occasion of a brand new book? Is the no, no, I, I sometimes come without uh, anybody telling. <laughs> have you taught here at all or not? No, I, I can't teach. Uh, Why is that? Because I don't believe you can't, can teach people writing fiction and... Uh, I don't know what creative is. Uh, creative writing is. Oh, there certainly is no such thing. <laughs> but you're not supposed to be so honest about things. Uh, you, you'll get nowhere being honest like that. What you have to get, but there aren't as many of those jobs as there used to be, is just being the writer in residence, uh -huh. where what was required of you was simply to exist. You had to draw breath, but beyond that, nothing was required of you. Yeah, but then you would be an inmate of, uh, yes, of, a, of a campus. And, uh, <laughs> I'd like to live in the city. And then I don't want uh, to be listened to, but to be read. Mm. That's a very interesting point, isn't it? That's the real writer. Yes, that he, he doesn't want to be but listened to. But it is to. the usual device of, of writers who want to be uh, to, to come to this country is to simply to get a job teaching somewhere. But then uh, often they end up way out in the West somewhere where they don't really want to be. I am glad I got, I got an ordinary job, full office hours, no privileges. Uh, you see, uh, I learned how it was. Mm. Enormously but, grateful for but that. But now all you do, you do is write. You don't have to have a job in England as well as write. Um, no. I, I don't, well, <laughs> sometimes I write. Yeah. Sometimes I watch. But it's very, very hard to uh, write continuously, I think. Yes, it is. And if you're a poet, of course, you can't do anything about it. It's just a, it's, that's a desperate trade because, as Alastair Rita said, you have to put yourself in the posture to be struck by lightning. But there's not very much way to make the lightning strike. All you are in is a posture. And uh, it's much better, it's much easier for me as a journalist, for example, in the, to the degree to which I'm a journalist rather than a, than a novelist or a short story writer. I can keep myself busy by discipline seven days a week. Yeah, that's the same way with, with, the, with a novelist. He just has to sit before his typewriter and wait and wait. And if the waiting takes six hours, he has to stay there. <laughs> <coughs> But after an hour, he begins. When what is the title of your book, Anniversaries? What does that mean? That uh, means uh, uh, a, sh a, sh a sh shade of the German expression that uh, anniversaries cannot possibly be catched. That is, uh, uh, Jahrestage, that means days of a year. Mm. This book contains uh, 365 days between August 67 and 68, and anniversary means that... Uh, the young woman, Mrs. Crespal, whose life in New York is described in this book, uh, remembers things from her uh, childhood, from, from the time when she grew up. And as uh, the consciousness of the present can contain the past just by memory, uh, this is a book with two level, uh, uh, a biography, a biography from the early years and uh, a biography uh, of one year. But it's filled with uh, particularities about New York City about uh, how a wife, uh, how, how about a woman without a husband, uh, but with a child, 
can and must live in New York. And is this mostly about the Upper West Side, or does she get around a lot of New York? No, she she has a job, you know, full office hours, no privileges, and so uh, her her home is the Upper West Side. And, and does she work in the uh, East Forties uh, like a certain man named Ewa uh, Johnson? <laughs> well, uh, where are the banks? The banks are in Midtown, so yeah. as she works as a secretary for a bank, she she has to, uh, to to go to Midtown every morning. And not on Saturdays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on Saturdays, she uh, very often uh, is taken two trips on the South Ferry by her child. <clears throat> Across to Staten Island? Yes, uh, this trip to on the South Ferry is quite an institution with this family. It's, it's very important in the book, isn't it? Yes, uh, the child uh, proclaims days as day of the South Ferry. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, we have a wonderful thing now in the summertime of, of having concerts uh, uh, Combos, jazz combos on the on the ferries at night, going back and forth ah, between Staten Island. David Amram, for example, last summer had most wonderful concerts. Everybody brings his own food and drink, and they play like mad. And hundreds of people are on the ferry. They're singing and carrying on and kind of oh, dancing, wonderful. just joyous. And this kind of joyousness is again something uh, uh, that amounts to a novelty as compared to my first view of New York in the 1930s which is not only grim because it was in the Depression, but it was grim because the nature of the people uh, was grim at that time. It was the habitual stance of the people. Mr. Gill, have you been mugged once? No. Uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, dangerously so or not? Uh, not very dangerously because uh, I said I was a tourist from, from Iceland and uh, could they please show me a hotel? And they showed me the hotel and left me the $8 it would cost. Oh, that was rather nice. I think we should mention such things uh, yeah. so that we mightn't be suspected of painting too bright a picture. Oh, yes. No, no, but mugging, is, again, there was a lot of mugging in the old days which we didn't call mugging. If somebody snatched a purse, that was not known as mugging. That was known as snatching a purse. But now everything gets... I think a mugging is really violent. I, when I think mugging, I think somebody has slugged you and broken your jaw... I think if anybody takes my wallet, I don't call that mugging. Uh, I was, it was a knife in my case. Yeah, well, <laughs> if there's real danger, or if, if, for example, Charles Adams, our celebrated artist on The New Yorker, yeah. he had, he had uh, some desperate uh, chemical thrown on his head outside the Plaza oh, Hotel, that they were just him. out to, to do him physical injury without regard to uh, oh. seeking money. But your muggers sound charming. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, they were very young. I think they were learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they learned something from you about um, how to be nice. I mean, that a foreigner needs protection. I think that they certainly yeah, learned well, that well, lesson. They, in a way, they showed me the city, you see, by yes. directing me to the hotel. But there <laughs> are terrible and utterly conscienceless crimes, which are unlike any crimes that used to be committed in America, including pushing old ladies in front of subway trains. Yeah, Pe people just who, for the fun of it. who murder uh, old folk just for the fun of it. This is something new uh, in, in American life, as far as I know. In the past, uh, crimes were expected to have motives. Yeah. And motives were, were not simple pleasure in, in, in causing death. Well, in the past, uh, many... Most of the murders in New York happened between relatives, engaged people, and so people it was a who knew family each other. As in France, and passionate crime. Yes, and I've been told that this trend is being re reversed, that uh, the senseless crimes uh, increase now. Is that true? Yes, that's a, that is the case. That That is a terrifying aspect of life. One doesn't mind being murdered by one's relatives, <laughs> but, uh, but by a perfect stranger it simply isn't done. Um, uh, Mr. Gill, you've, you've not told us uh, how... Um, the New Yorker has changed. Has it, uh, I mean, in reading your book, one feels an enormous continuity 
Um, has, the, has it changed with New York? Oh yes, I think what hasn't changed, what makes people, what makes it possible so. for people to recognize the mm. magazine and to want to go on reading it, is that an attitude toward life and toward the city, toward each other, hasn't changed, and the tone, uh, therefore, hasn't changed too much. Although it is perhaps less arch, less making a leg at the reader like than it used to be. But what has changed, of course, is the subject matter because we we, we reflect the real world, and as the real world has altered and darkened. Uh, the New Yorker has altered and darkened. And you've become very ecological and very political. And that all happened, well, but it happened 25 years ago. You see, uh, E.B. White was feeling as passionately about the Atlantic Alliance and then about the United Nations uh, almost 30, or indeed 30 years ago, uh, as people have cared about, about Watergate Vietnam. and Vietnam, Vietnam today. Yes. And we had yes. something like that going on uh, in the Second World War. We were reporting the Second World War uh, better and more seriously than any other journalists that, that, that have ever reported any war. And, and so it isn't that we have just stumbled lately upon the outside world. We've always reflected it. Concern. Probably I think you might say that the thing about both of you is that, uh, and this is reflected also in your use of the New York Times throughout your book, that what matters most is uh, concern, what the Quakers call concern, isn't it? That one should be concerned for one's city and concern, that the, a newspaper should be concerned, that a human being should be concerned. Would you agree with that, Mr. Johnson? Oh, yes. Uh, <coughs> you have to make sure that you have neighbors and that you know your neighbors and talk to them. I think that's uh, very important. Uh, I mean, you yourself might be quite uninteresting, but uh, what your friends make out of you uh, makes you a human person. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the wider view. Well, I think that this is, uh, we've come about to the end of our time, and I'm most grateful to Mr. Johnson, whose new book, Anniversaries, has just been published by Harkett Braid Shavanovich and is a love uh, letter to New York, and uh, Mr. Brendan Gill, who has described 50 years uh, of The New Yorker and his own 40 years at The New Yorker. His book, Here at The New Yorker, is published by Random House. Thank you very much indeed, Mr. Johnson, and thank you very much indeed, Mr. Gill, for coming here on Pen Portraits on WNYC. Thank you. <laughs>